I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. This is the shortest short story I think I've ever written. It's one, two, three and a half pages. And it's called Placing a Call. You are telling me something I don't want to hear. You are telling me the honest truth. We are standing in the garden and it is dusk. There are rain clouds in the sky and midges and someone is planting a rose bush in the garden next door. The telephone is ringing. I run into the house and pick up the receiver. The telephone is pressed against my ear. Someone is calling and I am answering. I am saying hello into black plastic. But I hear the dial tone and the ringtone happening at the same time. Someone is missing. Someone is trying to get through. And then I remember there's a bird in the garden that imitates a telephone when it sings. I can see it now in the tree in the garden where you are telling me the honest truth. It is singing in an old-fashioned ringtone. It is singing like a landline. I run back into the garden and it's autumn and there's a bird in the tree that imitates a telephone when it sings. Your hair is silver, but you are not old. Under your silver hair is your skull with your central nervous system inside it. It is dusk and it started to rain. The roots of the eucalyptus tree that grows in the garden are spreading under the house. Our daughter is sleeping in the house, under a photograph of the sea. She is covered in a thick blanket. Her bed stands on a green carpet. There are two stains on the carpet. You are wearing a white shirt and a suit, and under your soft silver hair is your skull. While you speak the honest truth, I am thinking about the time we ate horse steaks in Paris. The waiter served the dish of the day, and the dish of the day was horse. 
It was like eating a unicorn in the 21st century. But now we are standing in the garden and the telephone bird has stopped making calls. No one answers. Your silver hair is wet. Our daughter is pretending to sleep inside the house under a photograph of the sea. And she's listening to the rain, which always makes sorrow bigger and hard things softer. I walk towards you, bumping into things on the way. Kissing you is like new paint and old pain. It is like coffee and car alarms and a dim stairway and a stain and it's like smoke. I am looking into your eyes and I can't get in. You have changed the locks and I have an old key that doesn't fit. And our daughter is making her way across the garden towards us, holding her thick blanket. You are telling me you are dead. And I say, yes, I know you are. We miss you. And since you've gone, I've forgotten all my pin numbers. I can't remember the code to my gym locker or where the honey is. And could you tell me again where exactly the sea is in that photograph? Just as a starting point, um, starting with you, Kirsty, why did you choose that particular piece of writing to, uh, to introduce? Well, I guess a practical point because it's short and it gives a sort of a sense, perhaps, of the the, the, the tone or or the, the kind of pattern of the collection altogether. Um, but also, I think, because well, one of the things that we share is a sense of that the reading of the story is to be involved in an experience that's kind of part of its own making. So the story is not just there to describe something that may have gone on in advance or as some kind of history that's being reported, but rather the, the story is something that's you know, that beautiful machine of words that William Carlos Williams talked about when he talked about modernist poetry, that the, that the story is the thing itself. And I think that that little introduction perhaps showed that that's where a collection like Infidelities is going to take you. So it was a kind of... But you're inside-outside, aren't you, in that moment? He's just saying short stories don't work as you're about to go and read a, a, a series of short stories. So you're standing in a very unusual place. Mm. You're sort of both um, introducing them, you're observing them, and you're potentially criticising them. Short stories don't work. Yeah. Well, in the same way that you're displacing that whole idea of what the story is by interrupting its sense of time flow and playing with past and present. Mm. But it's very clever narrative strategy to begin a book with short stories don't work because we all wired to say oh yes they do <laughs> and, um, so I think I think that's um, I think that's really smart so what was the what, why did you I mean there's that wonderful paragraph uh, towards the end of the story which I love I, I can't remember the, the, the smoke and there's something very intense and beautiful about that but why was that of, of all the collection which there's so many varied and interesting things there why did you choose that one I think it still mystifies me 
Um, it's unlike any short story I've written before. It's, it's entirely carried by voice. Um, it's built very meticulously. I'm aware that, um, I'm always aware when I read it out that um, I'm kind of setting up quite repetitively and formally um, the garden, the bird, the idea that someone's missing, a, a telephone call with no one at the end of it, and, and it's ringing, and the dial tone's happening, so there's something a bit uncanny happening. And I, I kind of risk boring uh, the reader. I know I do. And, you know, so it went through quite a, a few drafts because it, it was even more repetitive. I'd sort of laid down more of that grid. And so the edit was very interesting there. And when I get to, so, so I knew I had to kind of reward you for your attention because by the time we get to um, kissing you, yeah. to the kiss. Yeah, that's the background. Yeah. And quite a lot of what has been uh, talked or spoken of appears in that kiss. The stain on the carpet, um, old pain, smoke, all of that rain um, uh, it, it needed a sort it needed a kind of uh, epiphany pay somehow, off. a payoff but but yes and anyway kissing when it's going well is a bit like that <laughs> <laughs> I mean I when I was reading it uh, I, I mean I think I mentioned it you know I know that this, the, the writing of uh, Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield has both been cited as inspirations for both of your work. But, of course, the, the, the thing that immediately struck me was the Burt Norton, the first of the four quartets, the garden, the children, the missing. <laughs> the, um, and I don't know whether that was conscious or unconscious, but that I immediately... It was unconscious, but when you, when you said that to me earlier... Time I thought, and... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, past, oh, time, future, time, you know, everything merging into one. What I really appreciate about Kirsty's story the the first one is is is, is um is Kirsty's attack you know she just you, she's just she doesn't waste any anything anything at a story uh you can't really in a story mm. anyway but uh, we just completely there right from the start um with this energy and attack which i just uh, long to um read more of actually well, you're, I mean, that whole thing, that whole notion of not wasting and so on, this is something that people talk a lot about with short stories, don't they? They say that's what makes the form so special and so on. But in fact, so few writers, it seems to me, pay attention to it. So many short stories seem to me to be like, you know, versions of a kind of a novel. A novel, mm. yeah. But then we were talking about earlier about the idea of, the, of, of, of if you like, the talking about Einstein's first law of the universe, a continuous flow of energy. So if a story is just a continuous flow of energy, what's the moment the reader steps in? So I feel sometimes with your stories, Kirsty, that there's a moment, there's past, there's happening, there's the present and there's future, and there's a specific moment as a reader, you're invited to step in, you stay with the story for a time, and then you're told to leave in a funny sort of way. But the story goes on, and I don't know whether that's deliberate or... I so love that question, don't you? Mm. That idea of riding a kind of an energy. I mean, at that point, I want to ask you how you make your stories. Like, at what point do you grab that moment, or is it a mm. thing that you sit with? How does the drafting thing work? Hmm. Well, <laughs> energy. I, 
all writing is about energy. I mean, um, we, we all know when, when there's, you know, as a writer, when there's a lack of energy. I mean, maybe another word is attention, actually. Um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, what, what makes writing interesting is, is, is what the writer is paying attention to and then how she's paying attention to it. And, um, and writing that has its attention in a place that doesn't interest me can be very good writing, actually. Uh, we, all, we, all, we all know that. Uh, there's that awful uh, phrase on the level of the sentence. Well, on the level of the sentence, there can be strings of perfectly formed uh, sentences that somehow uh, never do it for me in the, in the short story. It's almost as if um, the sort of depth charge of, of a short story, um, and this is where um, and this is where infant infidelity is really scores. Is you kind of kind of feel when you jump into a short story that you can't put your legs on the bottom of the pool or the river or whatever. You can't can't quite reach the bottom. So I think this, there's a there's also a kind of exhilaration of finding techniques to give a story that dimension. Yeah. Um, too, and a, a story can take us so long to write. Oh, I mean, yeah. you were talking about a story you've just <coughs> just finished. Things can take forever. I'm, but I'm interested in that idea when you were talking about feet not touching the bottom, and this kind of that you know that weird exhilaration. And you just talked about the little story that you read now being mysterious to you. And it Slightly. seems to me that all of your fiction is mysterious. I mean, you're, you're doing things all the time that unsettle our expectation of what the story is and where it's going to go. And that makes the reader fully active in the process. I mean, that business of feeling mystified is really, really exciting. And if, if, if by that, you know, we mean a kind of an energy that you might kind of catch and run with, and God knows where it will take you. Like, I love that line. I can't remember who said it. It was Mansfield or, or Virginia Woolf. To, to follow the line and see where it takes you to end up hatless and absurd in Piccadilly. But you know that to write a story that you might you know, catch something, some feeling, some energy, some question, and then just run, and God knows where you'll end up. Yeah. That's exciting. I, mean, I think in, um, in the introduction to Black, Black Book, Michelle Roberts, I thought, which I think relates to this, says, we're not invited mm. to recognise ourselves or some mythic human condition in these stories. And I think what I sense what she's trying to say here is that these are not monomythic. There isn't an underlying sort of male storytelling principle. Uh, there's something that is, is uh, you know, as you say, energy-driven, uh, uh, attention-catching, has a very sort of fluid beginning, middle, and end, and sort of glitters in a way, catches your attention, reflects things, suggests things, possibilities, ways you might be. But it doesn't follow a kind of traditional pattern of, if you like, I mean, it's described by Joseph Campbell as separation, initiation, return, which most sort of classic novels do. So it's a very different way of writing. And I mean, you know, obviously, it's, for my, to my mind, a very female way of writing, but that's not necessarily in the for, 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 forefront of your minds when you're engaged in the task. Hmm. I quite like the Hollywood thing. Uh, who wants what, and who's stopping them from getting it? <laughs> <laughs> I find that very helpful. 
when I write. That's good. Are you? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, you know, I'm the t- preparation for this event, I went back to, you know, old Frank O'Connor. My Lord, the lonely voice gets a lot of press, doesn't it? And I was thinking, you know, I read it when I was young, and I think, you know, when I when I look back at it, I think actually what I was impressed with was the whole kind of mythography around O'Connor. You know, apparently these lectures on Stanford, people were having to cram in and sit on the window so the whole thing sounded so damn exciting. But actually, going back to them, all we really are hearing about is a writer that has one particular vision of what the short story is, which is about character and about what may what may happen to a character and whether that thing that happens is profound enough and whether the story is then profound enough. I mean, it's kind of variations on that. And it seems to me that, that there are other ways of writing, such as you're interested and I'm interested. And I was thinking, you know, when I grew up, there was my, because of being in New Zealand, that when I thought of short stories, you know, I thought of Catherine Mansfield mm-hmm. and I thought of Janet Frame, you know. Mm-hmm. That was how I was educated. Then, yes, you know, good old D.H. Lawrence came in. But it took me a long time to realise that people actually had a very different notion of what a short story was, which was about plot and is the character interesting enough and, you know, are we getting enough of that character? But I think, but then of course, I mean, well, again, we talked about this, that short star, short star stories cover, cover a multitude of sins. I mean, a short story can be a poem, it can be an essay, it can be a section of a novel, it can be a fairy tale, mm. it can be a, 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 a single verse from the sort of the Old Testament. So, uh, unlike a novel, it, as I say, it, it covers a variety of genres. So, um, and some, and, you know, a, a, a short verse in the Old Testament could tell you a very simple story with a beginning of a middle and an end. And it's usually about sort of, it's either about plagues and locusts or it's about multiple births or, you know. But it's very succinct. It's sort of praxis, I think, exemplified, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's no time for mood or setting the scene or, but it kind of get, it gets to the heart of it. So I'm very fascinated that, um, as you say, there's a very, there's sometimes a very sort of uh, controlled idea of a short story when it seems mm. it can cover so many different ways of storytelling mm. in a way that the novel I don't think does. Well, the short stories, short stories are so hard to write, in my view, mm. um, and that's and that's partly their pleasure, you know. Um, they're not all hard to write, but. Um, they're a good kind of testing ground for uh, figuring out what you might be able to do with time, how time might pass in a short story, or 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 how you might introduce a, a character for three seconds. So in placing a call, you know, we 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 have um, we have a waiter for two seconds, but he's serving horse steaks that might be a unicorn and. And and um, the the man in the garden with with silver hair, he, he all, all all we hear is that he's telling her the honest truth. Um, and perhaps another kind of writer would write what he, that means. They might actually write the honest truth he's he's saying, but I would choose to to leave that absent, and leave that uh, to you. Um, and I obviously would have some ideas too, you know, but also those kinds of decisions are so so exhilarating, so exhilarating to write. Um, I, I was trying to think why I ever started writing short stories. Um, I haven't a clue. 
um, I, I think um, I think the first short story I ever submitted anywhere was to was when I was nineteen and a student to uh, London Magazine. And I didn't really like London Magazine very much. I mean, you know, <laughs> I was 19. And, uh, but, but I had read that Alan Ross, who edited it, had published Sylvia Plath and Christopher Isherwood. And I thought, oh, well, maybe he'll publish me. And I sent him a uh, story. I, I wrote it on a typewriter uh, when I was at university. Um, and I probably sent him the first draft. And he sent it in a, in a uh, stamped addressed envelope, as you did. Uh, so my generation of writer, we didn't publish any, you know, there was no online to publish anything. Um, and it came straight back with Tosh, written <laughs> uh, across the um, first page. Uh, with a pencil at the top of the T and at the bottom of the T, sort of in a frame. And, um, and I, I remember looking at that feeling furious, you know, in the student and teen. It was the tosh. It wasn't really about gender. It was about class. I thought, that sounds really posh, tosh. <laughs> <laughs> tosh is posh. Yes. So I rewrote it, and, um, and I spent much more time on the rewrite, and it was called Heresies. And he took it. And that's, that's, in fact, he took me out to lunch. And I thought we were going to have a great conversation. I was only 19. I told my student friends I was going out to lunch with, a, with an editor in London of this magazine. And they, you know, they all helped me do my hair. And off, off, <laughs> off I went. And we didn't talk about writing at all. What uh, did you talk about? He just showed me pictures of his racehorse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a Deborah Lee short story. Yes. <laughs> so, but I mean, I remember from in reading thing, things I don't want to know. You knew you were a writer before you became one, Deborah, didn't you? I mean, you knew, didn't you? You were very determined to, 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 to with the. And you was this a very funny essay stroke story in there about um, coming to London and the lodger and and the lids left off things and kind of going to a cafe and sort of being a writer but not quite knowing how to get there. Uh, Claire's referring to um, a a section of my essay, Things I Don't Want to Know, and um, I described being 15 in London and I'd read lots of books about existentialists writing in cafes in, in Paris. Mm. But there weren't any cafes in London at that time. So I wrote in the Greasy Spoon in, in the bus station. And, um, and I imitated being a writer. I wrote, I wrote the word England on napkins in a blue biro. Just England, England, England in uppercase, lowercase. Um, and, um, and I discovered that writing was a bit like a magic trick because all the uh, bus drivers, uh, they, they didn't bother chatting me up or speaking to me. They thought I was just well gone, you know, just... <laughs> just, just. And so, so I realised, you know, if you make a space around yourself, I think that, that, that's a very important part of writing because mm-hmm. we have to be so ruthless with our... our attention and our focus and our time to write but that sort of making of a space around ourselves where you're not very approachable you're just not very nice 
is quite important. Did you do that, Kirsty? With you stubbing to do you no, have a No, I mean, all I can think about is the scene in, you know, The Shining, of course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Um, I, 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 I don't know. In my kind of Jack Russell way, I really want to know what, what it was about that rewriting. No, I want, I, I, want you to talk, I want you to talk a little bit now. Yeah, I'm um, ask that question. I, I, <laughs> tell us about the story you've just finished. For, no, for me, um, I've always wanted to write short stories. Okay. Know. So but did you have a consciousness at 13, 15, 17? Did you go and find your cafe or your equivalent? No, or no, because I'd always done it. And in fact, Leslie Bryce is here in the second row, saw some of my early stories, and there were versions of what you described, on that old-fashioned A4 paper that was like onion skin, mm-hmm. thick, scabby with tipex. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what you did in the old days. There were no computer, you know, you did it like that. <laughs> and off they went to the magazines, and back they came, saying, I remember cherishing a rejection slip from the New Yorker that just had the single word sorry written, <laughs> handwritten. Um, That's brilliant. So, yeah. tosh. <laughs> but I would really, really love to know that. I would mm-hmm. love to know what it was about the rewriting that changed it and made you feel that it was something you would then send back and then, and then it was published. Were you, were, you, were, you, were you learning something? In your rewriting, yeah, or had you given him something that you thought was finished, or had you given him something that you always knew wasn't done? Well, it was such a long time ago because it was my very first story. But you can read it in in London Magazine. Um, I found a dusty copy of it actually in my archive. It's really interesting this thing about sort of keeping stuff, isn't it? Um, I wish I'd kept Alan's letter. He was absolutely right. Uh, he did, um, he you know, he, he did he did kind of make me rewrite it. I, I could see that um, that it, it needed some work, and and I read it again. I read it at nineteen. It still needs some work, believe me. But what had inspired that story was were two things. Um, I'd read about Van Gogh painting an owl. Um, in a straw hat, and at a certain time, he lit candles. He put candles around his hat, and he lit the candles to give a certain kind of light. And I thought, how dangerous to have these candles on a straw hat. But how, how, how incredible. And I was thinking about his last painting, The Crows, and I'd also read an essay by Arto, uh, on Van Gogh. It's called Van Gogh, A Man Suicided by Society. And he suggests that the bullets that had suicided Van Gogh, these are his words, Arthur's words, were already in his stomach while he was painting the crows. So he had this, this strange um, collapse of time uh, that I think I think really got to me mm. uh, maybe it is why thank you for your question maybe that is why I wrote the story the idea that you could have the bullets you're going to shoot yourself with in your stomach already when you're really painting those crows was so mind-blowing and odd and um, uh, and I explored that idea in mm. heresies mm. and um, yeah, and I'm, you know, and I think it was very good of Alan, really, on the second draft to take it. I think it probably needed another draft, but um, he did. Do so you have to really work for your short stories to be published? 
Well, you um, didn't. I mean, two drafts. That's easy peasy lemon squeezy. <laughs> on a typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. Writing quite slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I love this idea, though, of writing to find out what will happen and writing your way into the story, get rid of, get, getting rid of everything that you don't need on the way in order to get into that essential spot. Do you think age helps that, growing older? I mean, we've talked about being writers in the middle of the journey, if you like, and do you think that sense of time collapsing, time is shorter, there's no time to waste, getting rid of anything that's extraneous, unhelpful? Actually, I think it's made me more patient. With yourself? Mm. Yes, not fast, no. Just more, more sort of patient with the work, you know. Um, I just sort of wrote in a fever when I was younger. Um, I just burnt the midnight oil. You know, when I wrote Beautiful Mutants, that was also on a typewriter. Mm. Um, there's a photograph of Angela Carter, which I, I love. Uh, she's in her study in um, Clapham. And there's a, a waste paper basket full of uh, screwed up paper. And uh, that really is what it was yeah. like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was just surrounded by paper. It's quite an artisan activity. I mean, in some ways, I do really miss all that stationery, you know, just the feel of the paper and the smell of the ribbon. And uh, my daughter got it because typewriters are quite cool now. Are they? Yeah, they're sort of making a comeback. <laughs> and and um, she wanted one for her birthday, so we got her... We got her one for 25 quid, a really good one. And um, she was very kind of into it for the first three minutes. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I must say, I still, there are still kind of remnants of the typewriter in my own practice because I've. I had a horrible thing happen a long time ago, which is that I lost pages of a novel, which I never recovered because it was all on screen. So from that moment on, I've always printed a page as I go. Mm. So I have the pages next to me, and then I work on the pages by hand, and then when I put them, putting them back on the screen, I then do that crumpling up thing. I crumple them up, put them in the bin. Mm. So it makes you feel like you're achieving something with the day, you know, making something with the day. What do you think about that idea that uh, uh, collections of short stories should sort of hang together? You know that you sort of curate them, and that. Um, Do you mean your own or anthologies or? Yes, but so 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 that there is so there's this idea, say that, um, you know, thematically or or, um, or 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 whatever, a collection of short stories. This is a term used quite a lot for short stories. They should sort of cohere. They should hang mm. together. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a bit of a marketing stitch of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a way of making people think that they're getting more bang for their buck and it's not really like short stories, it's really like a novel. Mm-hmm. But does it give you an opportunity? I sometimes say, I mean, I, is, the, is it the, uh, the famous um, Alice Munro collection? Was it called Open? Ground. Well, no, not Open. I, I can't, oh, it's, but, but that is, t- you zoom in and out of different yeah. perspectives. So you know a, one a, a voice a tiny little voice in one well that's very satisfying and you has a has a whole has a whole yeah. has a whole story in the oh, next step oh. and it's 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As a reader, it's kind of rather like being in a little universe yeah. where you can choose your... It's like, the, like sort of Google Earth. You know, you can go in and you can go out and you get a different perspective and things of different sizes and have different oh. levels of importance. Uh, I mean, the only thing I would say is that I find somebody gave me a collection of stories, every man collection of stories about London recently. It is literally one of the most turgid and boring things I've ever (laughs) attempted to read. Because just by virtue of the fact that they were about London doesn't make them good stories. And they were the worst of everything, if that makes any sense. They're really good writers, but they were the worst of everything. And I longed to sort of, in fact, I did cast, and I've learned to cast these things to one side and move on. But um, what do you think, Deborah? Do you like that? Do you think it's a, a, a marketing... Yeah, I, I can't make up my mind, actually, uh, because short stories, if I look at the... Sh- if I, I've got about four new short stories at the moment, and, um, and I was asking myself that question, you know, how do they hang together? And should they? Mm. they written, why should they? They're written at different times, um, but in the, in the recent sort of three years... Um, how would I what would I need to do to put them together to put them together I'm not sure what I think about uh, that idea at all something else I wanted to ask you do shorts have short stories influenced your novels idea other people's short stories or, or, or a mm. short story that you've just you've begun and haven't finished and used in some way can I answer that by, go, by going back to what you just said? Because I really, that, I, that idea of, um, of something, you know, what you might do with these four stories and whether you might gather them together in this way or yeah. that. You see, the thing about the short story that I really, really believe is that, to go back to your opening remark, it's mysterious. You know, it's like a poem. We're all a bit frightened of poems, really, you know? We don't think about poems the way we think about novels. Mm-hmm. We think about novels, oh, yeah, I've kind of got that sorted. I know pretty much what a novel is going to be. I know I'm going to be safe if I read a novel. Think about a poem, it might make you feel a bit stupid. You might not know what's going on, or it might take you somewhere terrifying. So, to my mind, a short story is like that. It's like that little kind of dangerous thing. And when you put them together, interesting things can happen. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- I was going to say, I love the way you've got a character in Black Vodka who, you know, kind of is a background character in Black Vodka, and then we see him later on taking the stage in another story. These little magic things that you talked about are fun. That's a different experience mm-hmm. to the thing of kind of, you know, putting on your marketing hat and thinking, well, how might this all sit together and be something that people might feel safe about? Mm. I think that's very important, actually, you know, that, that idea of the short story being a safe comforting uh, read. I wonder mm. about it. I mean, going back to Catherine Mansfield, mm. I had to dramatise um, 
some of Mansfield's stories for Radio 4 a few years back. And um, it was her 1910 collection um, in a German pension. Mm. And the perfection of those stories, where every single one of them is, um, is surprising. You think you kind, you think you've kind of got it, and you you know it's it's set in the pension in Bavaria, in um, in nineteen ten. The First World War is brewing, and it's got such a kind of uh, she's very biting and she's and, and witty, Catherine Mansfield, um, but it's so sad. It's got this kind of um, layer of 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 of, of really very deep melancholy. Uh, in all that humour uh, in it. And I later read that she had been sent by her mother to Bavaria. She was pregnant, and she'd been sent by her mother to Bavaria to have a baby. And um, it does, that doesn't matter. That autobiographical information I've given you doesn't matter, and it didn't matter to me not knowing it when I read it. But you could see, you know, that um, there she was, writing these stories. She miscarried... Um, she's writing these stories in a very kind of um, heightened, uh, deter- with, in a heightened state of mind, very determined just to transcend uh, all of this or her situation. I really do recommend them. Anyway, they were very difficult to dramatize because you couldn't make them shorter, couldn't make them longer. Mm. Um, it was one of the hardest jobs I've, I've ever done, and um, uh, and they perfect. They are perfect stories, every single one of them. Um, and I would give them to you know to anyone who, who who's sort of interested in the short story. I think in a German pension, yeah, is the one. No, great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm interested to ask you both. Um, why the short story has been not necessarily hijacked, but has been used by writers of horror and ghost stories, whether it's Charles Dickens or whether it's ever the great Emma James or Robert Ackman or why does that particular why why you know I mean I felt that the, the eponymous story of Black Volker, the first story, could almost become a horror story and it doesn't. It becomes a romance, which is one of the lovely, lovely things about it. But there is something that the the, the, the grotesque is often Attached this woman. I wonder why, and I wonder whether it interests you or you've ever tried it mm-hmm. or. Kirsty? Yeah. Well, no, I've never tried it. I mean, I'd love, you know, I'd love to be able to write really super scary stuff in the same way I'd love to write really funny things, but you just do what you do. I think, I think perhaps the reason <coughs> there is a lot of short story, the, the Poe tradition, goes back perhaps to another iteration of the idea of short stories which is that it's the story around the campfire or that it's the story yeah. told to children in bed, you know, while the wind is rattling on the window, uh, wind is rattling on the windows and the rain is pelting down and we want to feel scared and we want to feel that in one sitting we can be taken into a place of darkness and then taken out again to the light. And I think that kind of atavistic notion of storytelling is actually deeply part of my own thinking around the art of it, actually, mm. that there is something participatory and shared and 
But so, I use that word poetic again, actually. Yeah. But it's the stories we're told as children as well, and the stories we're told at bedtime, and the fairy stories, and the gathering round, and the little light glowing, and mm. then the stories you tell at school, mm. the, the urban myths, and, and, and as you say, you huddle round, and you're on a camping trip or something, and then you're telling each other scary stories. So yeah. I'd love sure. to write a hammer horror. Uh, <laughs> I really would, you know, because, because they all kind of circle that game we played as children, where, you know, where are you there you are um it's all about that isn't it and and something something is missing or someone is missing or someone's out someone's come to get you yeah someone's outside someone's outside and they're coming to get you um and i'd like i think david lynch in in his films actually also touches on on horror in a very interesting way sort of doppelgangers and 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 uh, you know, glamorous women walking down Mulholland Drive, and they don't know who they are, and 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 strange people come into their lives to kind of give them some sort of biography, and they try and put it together. But I, mm. um, one of the things about short stories, I have to say, and all writing, uh, where I'm really old-fashioned, is that I like to be transported to somewhere else always I think I have a great desire in myself as a writer to do that for my readers and for myself so that's sort of connected to um, ghost stories too yeah. where where we really are taken into <laughs> something something else yeah. you know into some into some other kind of Place. And fairy stories mm. could take you. Know, fairy story yeah. take. But having yeah. said that, one of the things that I did quite like being reminded by old Frank O'Connor about was this idea, he makes the distinction between what he calls pure and applied storytelling. So applied storytelling would be the ghost story. You know, it would be the story, as Gabriel would say, our friend Gabriel Josephichi would say, the thing that's, the story that's stuffed with stuff, you yeah. know, stuffed with stuff to keep you interested. As opposed to the pure storytelling, which is about the pleasure of the way the thing is made and the story itself and a certain kind of intensity that might be harder or some, to put your finger yes, on. Yes, or sometimes, you know, this, this, this mistaken idea that the story <coughs> is just about information, mm. getting, getting uh, a character across the road. So, you know, Johnny, Johnny walked to the pub cheerfully jangling the coins in his pocket. It's lots of writing like that. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's not too bad, is it? Because then you can sort of get you, you, what's in his pocket. Maybe he's got a mixture of euro and pounds and dirham, and and, and um, you can sort of uh, dislocate him somehow. But mm. I was one of the other th- themes. I mean, one of the themes that I feel both both your novels and short stories are saturated with is water. We talked about it sort of flows through everything, sort of it's rain, it's water, it's rivers, it's seas, it's swimming pools, it's swimming home, it's the ocean, it's the... Um, does that, it does its fluidity and its changeability and its sort of its darkness and light, does that reflect in some way? The kind of rhythm of your both your both the way you write, you know. Again, it's it's standing out as a sort of, you know, the chronological storytelling that goes in a certain way. You know, it, it, it allows you outside that to 
experiment and sort of, if you know, sort of free form, I suppose is the word. Mm. Well, I love swimming so much. I could almost really would rather swim than write. Um, yes, water is incredibly important. There's a lot of rain in um, in my books as well. I'm beginning to realize these things. Um, in fact, it was a John Cheever short story, mm-hmm. The Swimmer, yeah. that was the inspira- one of the inspirations for Swimming Home. And that was made into an incredible film. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, uh, with Burt Lancaster. Um, and uh, I think it's one of those films that could even perhaps be better than the short story. Um, but mm. the amazing, you know, the amazing premise of that story that's set in the 50s in Connecticut and a man limps out of the wood he comes to a swimming pool he looks out and he sees all the other swimming pools in the valley and he says oh these make a river these swimming pools are, are kind of a river and I'll name them after my it after my wife it'll be the river Lucinda and I'll swim home to Lucinda and you just know, as the story develops, that home is not going to be the greatest place to to return to. So that's that's also water in someone else's um, fiction. Mm. What about you? I think it makes a lovely metaphor, water, for a kind of interest that might be uncertain and reflecting, and all the all the beautiful adjectives that you used in your question. Um, that idea of, you know, the writing taking itself where it will rather than this kind of forced and willed project, you know, that is about getting to the end or making sure that you've accomplished the business. Can I just read you all a really gorgeous quote? Because in in, um, sort of defiance of all the Frank O'Connor... I went back to gorgeous old Flannery O'Connor and I was thinking, why is it that, you know, all I ever want to do is reread Manners and Mystery, which is like heavily annotated and filled with post-it notes, and I just want to kind of chuck Frank O'Connor across the room. And it's for things like this. This is what she says about the novel, but it works for everything we're talking about. Today, many readers and critics have set up for the novel a kind of orthodoxy. They demand a realism of fact, which may in the end limit rather than broaden the novel's scope. And then so flooded with the notion that fiction must represent the typical that in the public mind the deep that in the that in the public mind the deeper kinds of realism are less and less understandable so those, that kind of idea seems to me to reflect beautifully a kind of a watery idea about you know what what the fiction may be but it's true we both do have a lot of water in our world mm. Mm. i think that in the most toxic sort of time of publishing there was this idea, um, and also in the way that perhaps writing was taught, was that was that the writing had to be so hyper-coherent that students uh, didn't dare... Um, well, but let's put it another way. You know, the writing didn't stand a chance. It, it sort of died in its crib before it opened its eyes to stare at the world. Mm. And that's t- that really has to stop. That has to stop. Um, you know, the, the sort of hyper-coherence, which is just really a... Um, 
Uh, I, I don't think anyone believes it. I don't think anyone really wants it because we all know we slam doors sometimes and we don't know why. Um, so, let's... Mm. And we certainly is, don't slam doors angrily. I mean, you're absolutely <laughs> right. The trouble is that writing now, the general kind of quality of writing that surrounds us has inured us to be, to be at what I call active readers. You know, that might ask of us that we become engaged and try and figure it out and sort it out. That we know a door just slams and we know what that means. We don't need that ad, we don't need the adverb, you know. I mean, that's just a, a simple way of describing the, the, that process of a kind of deadening of our engagement as readers, mm. which is to be given apart. You know, reading is part of the writing. But perhaps, I mean, I think we may be drawing to the moment where it's time to ask questions. Mm. But I'm wondering as talking about waters and indeed, um, uh, the boy in the sea surfing. As writers, are you surfing the co- the co- that, that that sort of permeable place between the conscious and the unconscious? Is that what you're? Is that is that yes. what we're what we're riding here in these stories in these novels? Sure, I, I would say absolutely. That's a beautiful yeah. question, Claire. Yes. Okay. Well. Um, that was really wonderful. Thank you. And I think it's time, uh, if anybody has any questions or thoughts or anything they want to share, um, um, please put your hand up, and um, I'm sure Deborah and Kirsty will do their best to answer them. Hi. Th- thanks. That was so interesting. Um, and also, I just wanted to comment on the, the dial tone and the, the ring at the same time. That was so filled with uncertainty in a way, a very powerful image. But I just wondered about if either of you use the short story as a way of freeing yourself up. Um, in, I mean, as, as an artist, I use drawing to... As a, and that's not to say that, that it less, it's any less, but as a way of being completely experimental and free in order to come back to something. I just wondered if, if that was the case at all with short stories whether it's a kind of experimental platform as well. Do you want to kick off? No, I, well, I was thinking, the minute that the thing about your question makes me think about the point of the pen on the paper, because I always do my first drafts with a pen and paper. It goes back to what we were talking about before, the physical things. I tend to, no, the answer is no, and I always have an idea, you know, the story comes to me quite clear in terms of a sound or a colour or a, an atmosphere, and I tend to have a line for it that becomes the story. But having said that, I then will write and write and write in a kind of very experimental, free-form way to sort of write my way into the story. And from then, a kind of drafting process takes place. But I'm interested in the idea of the physical act of drawing being a bit like the pen on the paper and just kind of getting into a sort of a rhythm or a physical process. Mm. Yeah, I love your question. Absolutely. Um, short stories are, are places to really uh, play around with cadence and um, and all sorts of things. I just wanted to find a little experiment in, in here just, just to illustrate what you're talking about. This is from a story called A Better Way to Live, and uh, it's a marriage. My first glimpse of Elisa was through a haze of smoke from the barbecue. My orphan bride wore 
lime sandals and yards of eyelashes. The registrar from Orpington looked us in the eye and said words like honor and cherish. We said yes. Elisa said yes and I said yes. We said yes in all the European languages. Yes, we said yes. We said yes to vague but powerful things. We said yes to hope, which has to be vague. We said yes to love, which is always blind. We said yes, we said yes. So so that's just that's just an example, you know, of using this form, which I don't think I would I could use in quite the same way in a novel. Just to let to make the longest yes in a in a wedding ceremony I could possibly make. So yeah, absolutely. And also it's true, I should have added that of course the lovely thing about short stories is because they're short it's not like a novel where you get kind of bogged down, it can take years and years and you're stuck with that story. It gives you a chance to spend some weeks in a place and see what will happen. Mm. Any other questions? Hello. Um, I just want to go back to what you were saying about um, the hybrid of short stories and novels in a way, or, this, or something that seems to be fashionable, the hybrid <laughs> between short stories and novels, um, and what you said about infidelities and how it's in three parts, the leaving the staying out, the never coming home. Were those three parts, um, when did they make themselves known? How far through the process of writing the book well, were they? That's a great question, because the thing about the stories is they took, they were written over a long you know, number of years, and they were published in various, some of them in various magazines and so on. And, uh, and then I gathered them together into the collection. But the thing is, I always knew there were going to be a collection, and I always knew that the title of the collection was going to be a short story called Infidelity. And I had an idea of what that story was, but I didn't write it until right at the end. And then when I wrote that story, which is about writing a short story, um, I, I, knew that it, I knew that actually it was giving me directions on how to arrange the whole shape of the collection overall. Um, and that's when I started to think about this opening door, if you like, that would take us into the house that is nothing but open doors and, and no ceilings. I thought about that introduction, taking, you know, doing that job of kind of setting up a sense of, a sense of it being both one and also that surface being disturbed. So it's both united and it's both fractured. I hope that makes sense. I mean, that's why I love the cover, because that idea of a floor plan of a house that actually suggests that everything is in place and in order in the same way that the collection suggests that, perhaps with its three parts, is also to say that it troubles that very idea, which I hope that in the introduction. Thank you. Hi. Um, This is just a carry-on from that question, but did you write the last the first story about Helen and Richard before the last story about Helen and Richard or did you write it afterwards? Ah, yeah, and are they the same Helen and Richard? This is the other thing. Because I'm really, I'm not, yeah, no, it's a great question because the thing is I'm not interested in names, you know, I'm actually not interested in characters, not really. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, no, I did that deliberately. Infidelity was written and then I created the start of it, which is the bit I read to you tonight. But I've got the same names. The first story, a story she might tell herself, has a character called Helen in it too. She's stacking the dishwasher. So. Yeah. Um, Any more stories? 
Um, I had a question about throwing stuff away. I had a very um, nice lunch with a woman who runs Perini Press, which specialises in publishing novellas. And she's also she also writes novellas, and I said, oh, you know, that's interesting. And she said, yeah, she said, yeah, I, I usually write about one hundred and twenty thousand words, and then I get it down to about thirty-five. I cut it down to thirty-five. And I was like, kind of gulping over my ears. How do you do that? How do you make? You know, how do you? How can you be as strict and as brutal and as rigorous to? You know, you describe that lovely thing of the paper piling mm. up in waste paper. How do you do that to yourself and and retain retain confidence? And I mean, it's very brutal, isn't it? I have a very um, <clears throat> strange relationship with that. Um, sometimes, you know, it's wise, isn't it? If you if you're going to cut four pages, in those four pages there might be two paragraphs or one sentence or, or something you want to save, and um, and you, you most writers I think have off cuts, but I have this thing. I just think no, you can it can all go. I'm not going to do that. It can just all go, and I delete the whole lot. And the only time, and I and I start it again. I don't want it, uh, even though I think some of it's pretty good. You know, it just goes. The only time I came unstuck with that was with Swimming Home, where I did that, and I couldn't recreate those four pages. It's usually four. Hmm. Just couldn't couldn't recreate them. Um, and then a little later, I wrote a. Uh, a chapter for Swimming Home, which I still have, which I didn't put in, and that was about three months' work. But I just, it would have sunk the book. And, and in the have, end, yeah. you're just working for the book. Mm. You know, I'm sort of, in a, I guess that's what it is. You work, you work, there's much bigger, the book's much bigger than the author. Yeah. And um, so, it can, so it can go, you know. But you still have that section. I do, yeah, oh. I do. Oh. I do have that, oh. yeah. And what about you, Kirsty? I like that idea that we might keep some bits and maybe we might put them to use later. Or yeah. We've never done that, but like you, yeah, block, yeah. delete, God, mm-hmm. block, delete. Do you find it difficult to tell? You know, well, you know, you just know. You know, the thing is sitting there looking at you and it's going to tell you what needs to go and what will stay. Mm. It's kind of like, like Deborah, like your friend. I mean, we cut stuff out. Mm. I remember when I first, you know, reading Moby Dick when I was a teenager, I just loved that word, flens. <laughs> Take the blubber off the word. Can you imagine what's left? So you're flensing. Mm. Are there any other questions? Hello. Um, I wanted to know about place, a sense of place. Um, you talked about Frank O'Connor and Catherine Mansfield, and the two things you can say about them is that they're absolutely located in the landscape they're located in, and I just wondered if you both thought that was important or, or not. Um, I don't know. I wonder if what Deborah and I have in common is a, a bunch of things, but mm-hmm. that kind of placelessness. I mean, we have place, but we kind of make it other. I don't know. I <clears throat> don't want to answer for you, but I think we have that in common. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my novels are set somewhere. Um, the, the novel I'm writing at the moment is set in, in southern Spain, in Almeria, and, uh, because I know it very well. And, um, and I've watched those agave plants grow over the years. 
and um, and I'm always very fascinated by what the waiters are sweeping up on the floor. It changes every year, sort of pistachio nuts and sardine bones and all of that. Um, I don't like it when place replaces something really important. I wish I could be more specific, um, you know, get me in the morning. But, <laughs> but, 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 but sometimes place is a sort of fetishistic, um, not fetishistic, a, a rather sort of repressed, a lot of repression in place. As it, it, it sort of rep- replaces something else that's kind of much more interesting. Because we know when place is working, in books, and let, let's just go there. Let's go for Zebold, and you know, it's all it's it's working. It's not replacing anything. So, um, of course, place is important, um, but it's a it's a fascinating thing, place, because when you become so obsessed with it, because what's the point of just describing place? Mm. Oh yeah, the German thing that you mentioned that's very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the specifics of place are really important. So, for example, because I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's really important. There's one creature in the sea in this part of Spain, specific to place, that is incredibly important for the for the, for the book and becomes a meta, you know, one of the metaphors that worked. But is it important? Book. Is it important for the book? Or is it important for the reader's sense of the book being true? You see, that's the thing that I think is interesting. I think the reason that place can overwhelm, as you're suggesting, is again, it goes back to this thing that makes people feel safe. Oh, it's real. Oh, it's got that creature, so therefore I know that she really knows what she's talking about. Oh, in that case, I'm safe. That's a whole different kind of reading experience of a place that can be as real as right here, the LRB bookshop and various very place. It can be as real as that, but that the writing would make it belong only in the page, you know, that the pages of the book are the place. I actually reminded, I think we've got to wrap up, but I'm reminded of another short story I read, which was a very furious letter by James Fox in the LRB about Lord Lucan, which said there was a there was a particular kind of crab that could strip yes. a man to his scar, to his bones in two or three years in New yeah. Haven Harbour. Yeah. And in that lay you know, yeah. um, a multitude of stories. Anyway, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear Deborah and yeah. Kirsty discuss, debate, answer questions, talk about their work. They're such extraordinary writers and friends. And I'd just like to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.